Our Father, the book of James says that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father above. That is a true statement. 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says, And what do you have that you did not receive? We are extraordinarily favored. We could live in a country where the gospel is not proclaimed, where it is suppressed, where Bibles are not printed, nor are they available, but we don't live in a country like that. We thank you for that. We thank you that um, on every front of our lives, we see your favor and your goodness and your kindness. Not that we are pain-free or that we are free of adversity or difficulty. We, we have those things in our lives which quite frankly, also come from your hand. You declare that in Scripture more than once. You tell us that uh, in Ecclesiastes 7, to consider the work of God who can straighten what he has bent. In the day of prosperity, be glad. In the day of adversity, consider, for God has made the one as well as the other. Even in the hard things, even in the things that blindside us and stun us and set us back on our heels, initially we're shocked, we're stunned, and we've got to get our feet back under us, but if we look hard enough, we'll see a mercy somewhere. And you're the God who takes the worst that happens and if we'll be patient and if we'll wait on you, Romans 8.28 tells us that you will cause that thing to work together for good, as bad as it is. What a God you are, what a Savior you are. These are the truths that calm our hearts. These are the truths that enable us to face what we don't want to face. These are the truths that enable us to keep going on when we want to quit. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the power of it. We thank you that it's a comfort. Mary and I watched a video of a guy who was raised in the Muslim faith who became a committed believer just a few weeks ago. And I remember him saying that when he read the Quran, he could not find any comfort. But when he picked up a Bible, he was shocked that it was filled with comfort 
from you, your promises, your care, your provision, your protection, your steadfastness. These are things we must think on, and these are things we must ponder. For we are living in evil days. And it is this perspective, it is this perspective that gives us the fuel to keep going with grateful hearts. Thank you for these truths that we'll study tonight. They'll make a difference in every heart as the Holy Spirit applies it to every heart. Give us teachable hearts to respond. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We continue to trek through the Psalms. Tonight we find ourselves in Psalm 5. <clears throat> these Psalms, I've mentioned this before, I'll probably mention it again. As we go through these Psalms, you see some things repeated. You see some overlap, some stuff that was in previous psalms that's in this psalm. Uh, we'll get some new stuff. But we're on a journey. We are um, in a race. That metaphor is used in Scripture. We are going somewhere. Uh, John Bunyan wrote Pilgrim's Progress a story of a guy named Christian who, it's an allegory, who comes to know the Lord and this is his progress in the race, on the trail, on the path of life, on his way to heaven. That's where we are. Those who have gone before have finished the race. We're in the race. Some of you are just beginning the race of the Christian life. Some of you are in the middle. Uh, some are getting close to the finish line. But God oversees it all. In Psalm 5, where we are tonight, we'll see some things that have come up before. But... Each of these psalms has a unique perspective and a unique twist. Uh, psalm 5 does for sure. Don Williams, in his excellent commentary on Psalm 5, tells this true story. He says, during the Second World War, a U.S. arms plant was producing defective bomb sites. Sabotage was suspected. It was discovered, however, that the defects came because the employees were working so carefully on a small part that their eyes literally went out of focus. The remedy was for them to break periodically and look away at a distance to rest their eyes. Then... Once again, their work became flawless. And then Williams writes, as we rest our souls, 
looking up to our King and God, whose ear is open to us, we have clear vision to face the battles of our day. That is exactly what Psalm 5 is about. In, in Psalm 5, he is surrounded by the wicked. Now, the wicked, here's where you get some repeat. You'll find the wicked in Psalm 1. You'll find them in Psalm 2, Psalm 3, and Psalm 4. You'll find them in Psalm 5. I saw them on TV last night. <laughs> They're always around. They're... They're always there. There are always evildoers who are against God and God's commands and God's purposes. And if you were for Jesus, they don't like Jesus, therefore they don't like you. And that's just where we are and it's what we deal with, so be it. That's nothing new to people who follow the Lord. We have been unusual in this country because if you were a Christian uh, for well over 200 years, you pretty much had a free ride without persecution in this country. If, if you believed the gospel, if you had a Bible, if, if you went to church, uh, fine. It was not a problem here. This was a very unique place for religious liberty. But as we all know, that has taken a U-turn. And it continues to pick up steam and it continues to be uh, where we are these days. It's not gonna change. We might be able to hold it off. We might be able to put some place, some laws in here, there, but, but that's the surge. So we're living in different times than we were even 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago for sure, but that's okay. It's just where we are in our journey of life. In Psalm 5, once again, David is the author, and David is surrounded by the evil. He is surrounded by evil men and evil doers who want to take him down. You might be familiar with um, the term triple-double. It's a basketball term. So if you score at least 10 points, and if you have at least 10 rebounds, and if you have at least 10 assists, if you get into double digits in all three categories, that's in basketball what is known as a triple-double. In Psalm 5, you've got a triple-double that's different. Let me give you the outline, and you'll see what I mean. So in Psalm 5, and, and this is playing off that excellent illustration by Don Williams, of those who were um, doing very, very fine, detailed work on these bomb sites. And the parts were so small that it required incredible focus for long periods of time. Uh, the result being that uh, when they'd finally look up, their eyes were slightly out of focus. Uh, not only did it affect them, it affected the bomb sites that they were producing. 
And what was, what was the very simple solution that was discovered? As you're going through your daily task at work, that very detailed minutia of assembling a bomb site, you got to look up at times and you have got to, instead of just honing in right here up close, you've got to look off for some time off into the distance. Because what that enables you to do is to recalibrate your focus. It enables you to reset. It, it enables you to get back to where you need to be. If you're always right here, quite frankly, you're not gonna see straight. In Psalms, right out of Psalms, and we'll read Psalm five here in a second, but in Psalm one, you've got a contrast between the righteous and the wicked. That runs all the way through Psalms. Two kinds of people, the righteous and the wicked. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you don't keep my commandments, you don't love me. So you got the righteous and you got the wicked. What's happening in Psalm 5 is that David is surrounded by evildoers, by the wicked. He's the king. He's got people that don't like him. They don't like his policies. They don't like his decisions, which are based on the word of God. Because you see, he has an obligation, as we do, and whatever you do, Paul said, make it your ambition to please the Lord. And if it's your desire to please him, you're gonna get opposition because not everyone wants to please him. And you're gonna get people who will criticize and people who will attempt to take you down and disrupt your agenda. And that's what's happening with David. So what's gonna happen with David is he's gonna do a triple-double. And this all has to do with where he's looking. So here's the outline we've got tonight. Three times David is going to take a focused look at God. And I'll, and I'll break it down further in a minute. Three times he's gonna take a focused look at God. Twice, he's gonna look off to the side and see his enemies who are attempting to disrupt his life, to take him off task, to distract him, to put him in a, a state of discouragement and even despair. That's what's going on in Psalm 5. It's always going on in the Christian life, always. So our first point is a first focused look at God. A first the first I wanna say, the first focused look at God is verses one through three. Secondly, the first disruptive look at evil men, verses four through six. Three, the second focused look at God, verses seven through eight. Four, 
is the second disruptive look at evil men, at evildoers. That's verses nine and 10. And then the fifth point is simply the final focused look at God. There's your triple-double. Three looks up at God, two looks, side glances at those that are attempting to surround and disrupt and cause all kinds of havoc. Let's read Psalm 5, and then let's just read it, and we'll come back and dive into it. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Heed the sound of my cry for help, my King and my God. For to you I pray. In the morning, O Lord, you will hear my voice. In the morning I will order my prayer to you and eagerly watch. Now he's going to take a side glance at the wicked who are trying to disrupt him. Verse four, for you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. It's because God is holy. Holiness is absolute purity, moral purity. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity, or you hate all who are workers of iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. Now watch the, watch the shift. But as for me, because you see, now he's taking his second look at God. But as for me, your abundant, by your abundant loving kindness, I will enter your house. At your holy temple, I will bow in reverence to you. O Lord, Lead me in your righteousness because of my foes. There they are. Make your way straight before me. Now he's back to the evildoers. In verse 9, there is nothing reliable in what they say. Their inward part is destruction itself. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Hold them guilty, O God. By their own devices, let them fall. In the multitude of their transgressions, thrust them out, for they are rebellious against you. Final look at God, verse 11. But let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy, and may you shelter them. That those who love your name may exult in you. For it is you who blesses the righteous man, O Lord. You surround him with favor as with a shield. A shield. A shield. Shields are good things. Shields are protection. And he says there, I mean, we think shield, we think of, you know, you've seen pictures of Roman soldiers in battle and they got their shield. But see, this shield, the shield of the Lord, is just not here, it's everywhere. Because it says, you surround me. So the Lord, for his, for his men, for his people, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, for those who hope for his loving kindness. He's in front of you. He's behind you. He's your rear guard. He's on both flanks. He's above you. 
He's below you, underneath, underneath, underneath what? Underneath you are the everlasting arms. So he's got you totally, completely. You're in his hands. He's a shield. He will get you where he wants you to be. Doesn't mean that we're pain-free, doesn't mean that we don't have difficulty, doesn't mean that we don't have adversity, because we do, but his plan and his purpose for you, which involves pain and difficulty and hardship, will be accomplished. Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in Christ Jesus. Let's go back to verse 1 to our first point on the outline. Uh, the, the first focused look at God, verses one through three. Uh, the guy's in trouble, he's hurting. Give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my groaning. He's tired of this, he's fatigued, he's worn out. Heed the sound of my cry for help. Watch this, my king and my God. That tells you right there what team he's on. It tells you right there who he is. Now David's the king, but he is appealing to the authority in his life. Everyone has an authority. What he is saying is that you, O oh Lord, you're my king and you are my God. And so much of the Christian life is thinking. So much of the Christian life, Isaiah says, come let us reason together. Christianity is a thinking man's game. We just, we just don't read the Bible and we just don't read it fast. We read it and we consider and we ponder and we meditate. Because you see, when you're in the throes of being attacked, and in David's day, David was a king. And all these kings, David wasn't the only king, but these kings would go to war, and these kings played hardball. And if you were attacked by a larger nation or a more powerful nation, you were going down, and if you were the king, they might cut off your thumbs. They might uh, kill your sons and your daughters in front of you. They might uh, lead you into a very slow and torturous death. This, this, is, uh, this is heavy duty stuff back then. The warfare that went on, what kings did to other kings was very, very real. Uh, there, was, there was real physical danger here. See, that's where you really need a king who is a king of kings. That's where you really need a God who is God Almighty. Um, and see, this is where you need to think. When you've got enemies and you've got more than one and they're powerful and they've, uh, they can outlure you, they can outspend you, they can outmaneuver you, they can out whatever, you better know who your king and who your God is. And when you begin to think and ponder who he is, what happens is, because the tendency is, you got all these enemies, you got all this 
persecution, you've got all these attacks, you've got all these accusations being hurled. And, and when that happens to us, it might be in a family situation. If you've been through the pain of a divorce, you've been involved in that. All kinds of painful accusations, things being hurled, things being said, some which are probably true, some which aren't. Those things can get nasty real fast. Or a situation at work where someone decides you got a promotion and they didn't and they have a buddy who's higher up than you are and suddenly things are being said behind your back, rumors are being spread, this and that. If you've ever undergone anything like this, it's extremely unpleasant. And what it does is, what it does is, it just drains the life out of you. You you do more than take a side glance. If you're not careful, it will absolutely envelop you. It will take all of your energy. Quite frankly, when you're involved in a situation like that, it, it utterly drains you of your energy. It's emotionally draining. You, you've got about, you got about 5% of what you would normally have to do the work that you've got to do because that stuff just saps us. It goes deep. Uh, the very criticism can make us ineffective because you don't have the juice that you normally have. It's a very uncomfortable, it's unpleasant. David, David says, uh, consider my groaning, and you'll groan and you'll sigh. You ever just sigh? <sighs> and then someone will hear you, and you didn't even realize you did it, and it was wrong. Oh, oh, <laughs> oh, nothing. No. Well, I'm just about to lose my jalab and my iris and my 401ks, and yeah, oh no, I'm good. <laughs> This stuff goes deep. The only thing that's gonna pull you back to where you need to be is the truth of who your God is and who your king is. Um, Aaron Rodgers, quarterback for the Green Bay Packers, was raised in a Christian home and for a number of years had a testimony of being a follower of Jesus Christ, but in recent years, he's become involved with the heretic former pastor named Rob Bell. And Rob Bell has gone off the deep end, and Aaron Rodgers has gone with him. And in an interview he gave recently, he talked about the fact that he had difficulty with the binaries in Christianity. Binary refers to a substance or a concept that involves two things, like gender. Gender is male and female. That's binary. But you see, Rogers didn't necessarily refer to that, but he just referred to binary in the Bible generally. And the Bible is full of binaries. Heaven, hell. Well, Rob Bell teaches that hell is really not there. You see, the problem is 
Jesus did teach that it's there. Spoke of it twice as many times as he did of heaven. But you've got heaven and you have got um, hell. You have got the righteous and you've got the unrighteous or the righteous and the wicked. You've got two foundations, Jesus said in Matthew 7. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them is like a man who builds his house on the rock. That's a foundation. But then he went on and says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them is like the man who built his house on the sand. You've got a binary there. They're all the way through Scripture. You've got two paths in Scripture. Broad is the road that leads to destruction. Narrow is the gate that leads to life, and few are those who find it. That's a binary. Aaron Rodgers, for whatever reason, doesn't like the binaries. The problem is these binaries have been put in place by God. That's the problem. And the problem is we want to become our own gods, and we want to construct our lives not according to what God has said. We want to construct our lives according to what we want. Came across something in the Wall Street Journal this week. I thought it was kind of fascinating. Uh, The article is called A Heated Oxford Education. When most people think of Oxford, what comes to mind are images of bright minds debating quantum physics or the existence of God. But even the brainiest sometimes need a lesson in common sense. That's exactly what the bursar at St. John's College, a bursar would be the chief financial officer. Uh, The bursar at St. John's College, the most richly endowed college at Oxford, delivered when he responded to students occupying his 15th century quadrangle and refusing to leave until the college divested its oil company shares. It just happened in the last week or so. The students want the college to sell the more than 10 million of its endowment now invested in Shell and BP, and they want it now. The Times of London reports that the bursar, Andrew Parker, made them a counteroffer. I am not able to arrange any divestment at short notice, he wrote, but I can arrange for the gas central heating in college to be switched off with immediate effect. Please let me know if you support this proposal. The idea that the students themselves make a fossil fuel sacrifice did not go over real well. One protest organizer complained that Mr. Parker was being flippant, noting that it's January and it would be borderline dangerous to shut off the central heating. Although for hundreds of years, they had no central heating in those buildings. Another suggested Mr. Parker was being provocative. And again, Mr. Parker responded, With wisdom, you are right that I am being provocative, but I am provoking some clear thinking, I hope. It is all too easy to request others to do things that carry no personal cost to yourself. The question is whether you and others are prepared to make personal sacrifices to achieve the goals of environmental improvement. What was the problem? The problem was these guys' eyesight was out of focus. Was it not? This is becoming more of a reality in our day. I came across this this week at the Gospel Coalition website. Victorian preachers could soon be imprisoned for preaching biblical sexuality. Victoria, 
uh, estate in Australia. This pastor, uh, Murray Campbell, writes, as a Victorian, I have a moral obligation to report to authorities personal knowledge of alleged child abuse. As a pastor of a church, I have both a moral and legal duty to report knowledge or of suspicions of child abuse. Mandatory reporting is a social good. Even without the legal requirement, one's natural concerns for a child's well-being would automate contacting the police. In Victoria, under new laws being proposed by the Andrews government, I can be imprisoned for 12 to 18 months for speaking up against the psychological and physical trauma inflicted upon children by gender warriors and dangerous medicos who work to change the child's gender or sex. Now this is, what's, this is where we're going, you see? And I mean, for a pastor, that's, that's, a, that's a very real threat. No income, how do you take care of your family? I mean, you can just imagine. You don't have to be a pastor to be under this kind of threat. This can happen to you if you don't sign off on the political correct agenda. And you see, and, and you got all these enemies and you got this, uh, this wave of opposition to biblical teaching. And if you take a stand, boy, I mean, are, are you going to get it? Yeah. You better know who your God is and who your king is. Because if you don't, you'll never get any sleep with rest. This psalm is very pertinent to where we are. So you got to have a firsthand focused view of God. Secondly, secondly, David has his first disruptive look at the evil men in verses four through six. Uh, in verses four through six, he tell he he declares the truth about God, for you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, no evil dwells with you. In Isaiah 6, we read, uh, in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord high and mighty lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two they flew, with two they covered their face, and with two they covered their feet. And they cried out one to another, tolerant, tolerant, tolerant is the Lord God Almighty. That's not what it says. And they cried out one to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That's absolute moral purity. God is absolutely morally clean. God cannot sin, God cannot do evil because of his nature, because of his character. God cannot lie. No evil dwells with you. That's who God is. Because of that, verse five, he's taking this side glance at his enemies. The boastful, the boastful shall not stand before your eyes you hate all who do iniquity, all workers of iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. Why? Because he's holy. This, uh, this is not real kind, is it? 
but it's true. Christianity has become very, very soft in regards to the holiness of God. You have certain psalms that are called imprecatory psalms. An imprecatory psalm is a psalm where the writer of the psalm asks God to punish the wicked. He asks God to punish the evildoers. And some of these psalms, Psalm 5 being one of them, the, the language sort of, well, wait a minute, I thought we were supposed to hate the sin and love the sinner. I, I don't see that in that particular text. It, it says, you hate all who are workers of iniquity. Why would that be? Because God is holy. Uh, Warren Wiersbe, is a, he's so practical, he has so much wisdom. In his section on this psalm, he explains this. He says, in these imprecatory psalms, the writers seem to describe a God of wrath who can hardly wait to destroy sinners. The writers also seem to picture themselves as people seeking terrible revenge against these enemies. But several facts must be considered before we write off the psalmist as pagan brutes who cannot forgive or God as some kind of dirty bully. To begin with, the enemies are rebels against the Lord God Almighty, Psalm 5.10. And in some instances, against the Lord's anointed king. The Jews were a covenant people whom God promised to protect as long as they obeyed him. That would be Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 27 through 29. In his covenant with Abraham, God promised to bless those who blessed Israel and to curse those who cursed him. When the Jews asked God to deal justly with their wicked enemies, they were only asking him to fulfill his covenant promises. God is love, 1 John 4, 8 says, but God is also light, 1 John 1, 5. And in God's holiness, he must deal with sin. Ever since the fall of man in Genesis 3, there has been a battle going on in the world between truth and lies, justice and injustice, and right and wrong, and we cannot be neutral in this battle. C.S. Lewis said this, if the Jews cursed more bitterly than the pagans, he's talking about what they would say in the imprecatory Psalms, okay? If the Jews cursed more bitterly than the pagans, this was, I think, at least in part, because they took right and wrong more seriously. For if we look at their railings, we find that they are usually angry, not simply because these things have been done to them, but because these things are manifestly wrong, are hateful to God as well as to the victim. So I'm watching this speech last night. And I won't have any other comment about it except to say this. I see these women dressed in white who were mass murderers. That's what they are. They are absolute mass murderers. And it's just not the women. 
It's those who subscribe to the platform of that particular party, and if you do, and before you get angry, you better ask yourself what the heck you're doing subscribing to that, if you name the name of Christ. Because God says, you shall not murder. And they're murdering babies left and right. In Virginia, they've just undone laws that have been put in place to protect unborn babies to the point that now in New York, and you can watch this on YouTube, and there are applause when they passed it, and it's happening in Virginia, that even if a baby is born in complete health, a consultation can take place between the doctor and the parent, and that child can be killed. That is flat out cold blood murder. And when that passed in New York, you can watch them on YouTube, applauding, yelling, congratulating, celebrating. I don't care if you're dressed in white, you got blood all over your hands. And God will judge that because God is holy. And if you're okay with that or you think that's a little extreme or a little unkind, you better ask yourself if the Holy Spirit of God lives within you. Because what kind of spirit is he? He's holy. He is holy. Be ye holy as I am holy, he says to his people. I mean, this stuff is all around us. Absolutely all around us. They take our tax dollars and give hundreds of millions of dollars to slaughter these children. That's wicked and it's evil. And God will deal with it in his way, in his time. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. We are to be angry and not sin. There are some things you should be angry about. Are there not? He's got one other quote from Lewis here. Wearsby does. Perhaps our problem today is what C.S. Lewis pointed out. We don't hate sin enough to get upset at the wickedness and godlessness around us. Bombarded as we are by so much media, evil, and violence, we've gotten accustomed to the darkness. Joe Carter had an article this week in the uh, Gospel Coalition. Why do so many Christians not have a problem with abortion? And you say, I thought all Christians had a problem with abortion. No, 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 no. You got what you call, quote unquote, progressive Christians. That means liberal. Uh, they just don't accept the authority of the Bible in all things. They pick and choose, like a buffet line at a hotel brunch on Sunday. Oh, no, I don't want any of that. No, oh, but I'll take that, I'll take that. Yeah, I'll take a gallon and a half of kindness. Mm -hmm. Proverbs 3.3 3 says, wrap truth and kindness around your neck. Let's take a look at the next point. The second focused look at God. Verses um, 
7 through 8. Verses 7 through 8. He says, but as for me. So he shifts immediately from the wicked to himself. But as for me, by your abundant loving kindness, I will enter your house. Or by your mercy, I will enter your house. See, the fact of the matter is, we're all born wicked. We're all born unrighteous. Uh, Romans 3.23. Uh, this, this, this is basic Bible doctrine. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But Romans 6.23 says, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Uh, we all start out unbelievers. We all have a sin nature. We're all opposed to God. Psalm, Psalm 14 makes the statement, and it's only a few pages over. Psalm 14 says this, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. But then the next line says, there is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. We're all born sinners. And what happens is that a certain point in our lives God invades our lives with the gospel and the Holy Spirit begins his work and the Father draws us to Christ and our eyes are opened and we see the truth of the gospel and we say, Lord Jesus, come into my life. Forgive me of my sins. I believe that you're God. Be my God. Show me how to live. I want to follow you. And that's when everything changes. In, um, so, so we all start out in the unrighteous camp. We all start out in the wicked camp. And this is the great news of the gospel. Take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses um, 9 through 11. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. The church at Corinth was probably the most screwed up church in the New Testament. They had all the gifts of the Spirit, but Paul said, I can't give you uh, the meat of the word because all you can handle is uh, baby formula. You can only handle milk. You're not mature, you're immature. In 1 Corinthians 6, those, 6, verse 9, he says this, or do you not know, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals. That effeminate there has the idea with homosexuality, the passive individual in homosexuality. Nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's pretty clear. Next line. Such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. I've used this illustration before, but it fits this passage. Ray Stedman, longtime pastor at Peninsula Bible Church, where I first started going there when I was a senior in high school, in Palo Alto, California. Uh, as Ray was teaching through Corinthians, this would have been in the 60s at some point, 
he read this passage, 1 Corinthians 6, on Sunday morning, you know, the place is full, and everybody in their suit and ties, and everyone looks fine and good and, you know, moral, morally upright, and, uh, you know, all former Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, and Ray reads this passage, and he looks out at the congregation, and he said, what we just read in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 10, if that applies to you and your life, and that's who you are, would you please stand to your feet? And people, what did he say? <laughs> he said, if that applies to your life, any of those things, would you please, we'll just take a moment, would you just stand to your feet? And people are kind of in a state of shock. And they're <laughs> like you guys are. And, and then over on the side, one guy stood up. And everybody looks, and then a guy behind him stood up. And then a lady over here stood up, and in about two minutes, everybody in that building has stood up. Because you see, and such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. We all start out wicked. We all start out unrighteous. But then the Lord Jesus gets a hold of us. If any man is in Christ, 1 Corinthians 5, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Behold, all things pass away. All things pass away. All things become new. So if that applies to you, no, I'm not going to do that. That took some guts. You guys familiar with Tex Watson? Tex Watson was part of the Manson gang. Grew up north of Denton. Um, was a did really well in school, did really well in sports, went to North Texas, raised in a Christian home, got a job part-time unloading baggage at Braniff, if you remember Braniff Airlines. Had a buddy that was at North Texas, moved to L.A., and because Tex Watson would get passes to fly on Braniff, he started flying out to L.A. to see his buddy. And his buddy had gotten into all kinds of stuff. And they're driving down Sunset Boulevard one night, and a guy's hitchhiking, and they pick him up. That guy's name is Dennis Wilson. He was the drummer of the Beach Boys. And at first they didn't believe him, but it was him. And he said, yeah, come on up to my house. We're having a party. And they go up the hills above Hollywood, and here's this massive, uh, uh, Watson said, the biggest house I'd ever seen. And he started hanging out there. And one night he went to a party, and there was this weird dude in the living room strumming a guitar that was Charles Manson. 
and then the rest is a tragic history. Watson was part of that, murdered these people horrifically in cold blood. He's been in prison, I think he's 73 now, I think he's been in prison 50 years. He came to know Christ in prison. For about 40 years, he's been a chaplain at the prison in San Luis Obispo. Central California is, a case can be made, it's it's the best part of California because it's not real populated. But that prison is four miles from the beach. It's just a few miles up the road to Paso Robles in the wine country. People come from all over the world. And he's been in those walls for 50 years. And he'll probably never get out. But he knows Christ. And he's been redeemed. If you go to his website, he'll have suggested readings, including C.H. Spurgeon. (laughs) Morning and evening. Because I'll guarantee you when Tex Watson gets up every morning, he's doing morning prayers. He's doing morning like David did in Psalms, and evening. You see, do you remember Son of Sam in New York? The mass killer. People were freaked out in New York. Yeah. David Berkowitz. That's him. Jesus got a hold of him. And this article in World Magazine, it's really interesting to read because, I mean, this isn't just a recent thing. This guy's been walking with the Lord for probably 25 years. Very honest. His favorite miracle that Jesus did was when Jesus healed the demoniac who was in the caves and wailing at night and cutting himself. And then after Jesus touched him, he was sitting there in his right mind. He works with other prisoners and helps them find the Lord. Doesn't deny what he did, doesn't excuse it, doesn't deserve the grace of Jesus. Romans 9 says, Behold the kindness and severity of God. Is God severe in his judgment of sin? Yes. But his unbelievable kindness in sending Christ so that anyone could be redeemed, anyone could be forgiven, anyone could receive eternal life. In verses 9 and 10, he takes a second disruptive look at evil. The emphasis is on what the evil doers say with their mouths and with their tongue. Look at verse 9, Psalm 5. There is nothing reliable in what they say. Their inward part is destruction itself. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Hold them guilty, O God. By their own devices, let them fall. Uh, If you think about this, if you have pain in your life, not physical pain, but if you have emotional pain in your life, 
from people who are criticizing, from people, if you, I mentioned earlier, if you've been through a divorce, divorces can get so nasty. Things are said, things are stated, things are entered into court, things, or in business, things are said, accusations. I'll tell you where else, in churches. The nastiest things I've ever heard in my life have come from quote unquote church people. I mean nasty, vicious. I've been in situations where I've set in with families that are having, Christian families that are, that are having division and strife and they're looking for some kind of mediation and some kind of help and resolution. And I've seen things come out of the mouths of Christian men who were actually in ministry and had published books available and on Amazon on scriptural topics. And what came out of their mouths was, was absolutely wicked and evil and reprehensible and pointed to their family members, quote unquote, that they love. What I'm saying is, he's talking here about the evildoers and primarily what they do is what they say with their mouths. Peter Craigie, in his commentary on this section, is excellent. Listen to this. I'll wrap it up. Psalm 5 illustrates with clarity the polarity and tension which characterize certain dimensions in the life of prayer. We've seen that. On the one side there is God, on the other there is human beings, evil human beings. And the thought of the psalmist alternates between these two poles. This is what we're looking at. He begins by asking God to hear him, but recalls that evil persons have no place in God's presence. He turns back to God again, expressing his desire to worship and his need of guidance, but then is reminded of the human evils of the tongue. Eventually, he concludes in confidence, praying for protection and blessing. We'll see that in a minute. Watch this. But the prayer is not only for protection from wicked persons, but also a prayer for protection from becoming like them. Although the original psalmist was perhaps seeking protection from particular enemies, there is a sense in which this psalm may be seen as a prayer for protection from one's own tongue, from the evil that is within a person, both real and potential. Paul quotes this psalm in his catalog descriptions of sinful mankind in Romans 3. Thus, the enemies of the psalmist may symbolize all persons without God, without the gospel, and like all sinful mankind, they require the gospel. Psalm 5 offers not only a prayer that may be used in the worship of God, but also a mirror of mankind without God. And it's important to note that the principal characteristics of evildoers in this psalm, watch this, is to be found in their speech. They are boasters. They speak falsehood. There is no truth in their mouth. Their throat is an open grave, and they speak flattery. Ancient Israel was not a primitive society where the only ills were acts, but like our own society, it is an age in which the more sophisticated sins of speech abounded. And the sins of speech were not only an affront to God, but also caused pain in the lives of fellow human beings. 
Thus, from a New Testament perspective, it is difficult to limit this psalm as a prayer for protection. It must also be perceived as a prayer of self-examination and a request for forgiveness and deliverance. But did you get that nugget that he came up with earlier? The prayer is not only for protection from wicked persons, but also a prayer for protection from becoming like them. James 3.1, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. I cannot tell you how many Christian teachers over the years I have seen with their own families have done absolute demonic damage to the point that they have children who they raised in scripture and in the church who want nothing to do with the God that their father worships. James 3 says this, We all stumble in many ways. Verse 2, if any does not stumble in what he says, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now, if we put the bits into the horse's mouth so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so great and are driven by strong winds and are still directed by a very small rudder, whatever the inclination of the pilot desires, so also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of bird beast and birds of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. So, quite frankly, it's easy for me teaching Psalm 5 and looking over Psalm 5 and preparing to teach. And then watching that speech last night, it's really easy for me to hone in on those women in the white dresses. And it's just not the women, it's the other guys that are absolutely in rebellion to the living God. I can talk about them all night. But what's the real purpose of this psalm? I'll read it again. The prayer is not only for protection from wicked persons, but also a prayer for protection from becoming like them. That's my prayer. Let's pray together. Father, we have been saved by your grace and mercy, but sin still lives within us. It dwells within us. We don't want to feed sin, we want to starve it. And we'll battle this until we die. Would you help us to take this psalm to heart? Not think about anyone else who needs to really hear this message, who really needs to read this psalm. Help us 
to examine ourselves. Search me, O God, and try my heart, and see if there be any grievous way in me. That's our prayer. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.